Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, they're all with one accord in one place. That's referring back to uh, verse 26 of the previous chapter. You had the 11, and then they, they uh, brought in Matthias. We studied that last week. And besides Matthias, uh, there are seven other apostles that are named in the book of Acts or in the New Testament. So there were more apostles than just the 12. And then uh, I believe Paul made the 13th. And there were seven others besides. So there were more apostles than just the 12, but the apostles that were the 12 had a very special position, but you ought to just know that and be aware of that. So these 12 are together on the day of Pentecost. They're in Jerusalem. Now, are they in the upper room? Uh, There's a good likelihood that they're in the upper room. They might have been in the temple because that's where people went for the Feast of Pentecost. But as we start this, Folks, as we start this, try to remove from your thinking 21st century Christianity. Try to remove from your thinking denominations with Pentecostal in their name, okay? I'm not, not trying to put them down. I'm just trying to say that that would give you something less than what it truly is to understand what the Bible's saying here about the day of Pentecost. Um, that would give you something less, something that's faulty, something that has been tainted by man, you know, uh, something that's less than the feast day that God ordained under the law in the Old Testament for the Jews. It was, Pentecost was one of three major feasts that all Jews were required to attend, and at least the males. And so they came from everywhere, all over the world for Pentecost. They would have already been there for, for Passover, okay? Fifty days prior, Jesus was the Passover lamb. And you count from that, you count seven weeks of days, and uh, you'd count seven Sabbaths, and that would give you 49 to the Saturday before Pentecost, and then Pentecost is on the first day following the Sabbath, so 50 days. Pentecost is on Sunday. So Jesus came up out of the tomb on the first day of the week, Sunday, that's his resurrection, and then Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down, and the church started, that happened also on the first day of the week. That's one of the big reasons why we have our church service on the first day of the week. That's why the apostles met on the first day of the week. So it's uh, moving from a Saturday emphasis with Jews to a Sunday, the first day of the week for Christians. But as I said, try to remove from your thinking any ideas about Pentecostalism or Pentecostal movements. And even within um, uh, Presbyterian churches and within... Uh, like old-time Orthodox churches back when they were sound, Orthodox churches or movements, they would emphasize uh, Pentecostal uh, Christianity. So it wasn't just Pentecostal uh, or apostolic or charismatic movements in America that emphasized Pentecostal Christianity. Uh, for instance, uh, G. Campbell Morgan, he was a pastor of Westminster Church in England, and uh, he has great material on on this chapter, Acts chapter 2, I was listening to it last night, uh, and he would talk about the Pentecostal power of churches. I've heard Ian Paisley, the great founder of the Free Presbyterian Church movement, 
And uh, over there in Northern Ireland, they were persecuted terribly by the Catholics in Northern Ireland in the 20th century, just modern day persecution. Um, but Ian Paisley would often in his prayers pray for Pentecostal power. So it's not just something that is um, an, an American uh, emphasis and, and even put into the denominational names. It's something that Christians over the course of church history have recognized that this is where our power comes from as a church. But try to remove that from your thinking and think this way. It's a Jewish feast. It's a Jewish feast day. That's what Pentecost is. Penta means 50. So it's 50 days past Passover. Pentecost. It was a Jewish feast day. All the Jews came in from everywhere again, stayed for Passover, and a lot of them just stayed all the way through uh, to Pentecost and were there for that. So the people who saw the great miracles that occurred when Christ was crucified, right? The darkness, the earthquake, maybe heard rumors of the veil of the temple being rent, the dead being raised to life, that first fruits resurrection of some of the Old Testament saints that came up with Jesus. They saw these miracles. They were right there in the middle of this. And the miracles continue now on the day of Pentecost. So what was Pentecost? Now, I thought I'd read to you a little bit from this. This is the standard publishers and uh, standard uh, teachers study Bible. But they have a note in here about Pentecost, about the actual feast day and what it meant for Israel. So I think it's good for us just to be grounded in scriptures not in 21st century Christianity and Christian movements and denominations. So here, this is what he says about Pentecost here at Standard Publishers. Okay, Pentecost was one of three festivals of the Jewish nation during which people were expected to celebrate in Jerusalem. It's significant for a number of reasons. This is what I wanted to read to you. Number one, the name indicates that it occurred 50 days after Passover meaning that it occurred on the first day of the week, Sunday, rather than the Sabbath, Saturday. And to get that, you could go back to the Old Testament and the book of Leviticus and find that, but we won't. So, number two, since less than two months separated the two significant events, Passover and Pentecost, many would remain in Jerusalem during that time. Number three, one of the purposes of the day was to celebrate the barley harvest. So it was to celebrate harvest. In other words, um, you had another great harvest season. And so in order to acknowledge God as the creator of all things and the provider of all things, God says you have this feast day. And then you'll make a, a wave offering. You know, the priest would do that. And acknowledge God as being the one who gives us blessings and, and s takes care of our needs. So harvest is regularly used in scripture as symbolizing people becoming mature and submitting to God. That's true. So you have the literal harvest, and then you have the spiritual application. Because all, all Scripture, all Scripture, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, it all can have a spiritual application to us. You can find spiritual meaning. You can read in your daily Bible reading, and I hope somebody still is with me, and I'm sure several are. But as you read through your Bible daily, you can find meaning in there. Even if you're reading the book of Leviticus, something that can speak to your heart. I know every day is not as, as fantastic as the day before, but you can find meaning in there. So this harvest is talking about, really, it's talking about a, a harvest of souls. 
That's what God is doing. God is harvesting souls out of this world. And what's our job? What's your job and my job? Are we the ones going out reaping the harvest? No, we just sow the seed, right? Broadcast the word. Scatter it. And we do that uh, with our lips and with our lives, with both of them. We do that. At, we have a Christian testimony in town. Uh, although uh, our, because of our location and because of the declining area here, you know, not as many people know about us, but people do know about us. And those who do, we have a Christian testimony with them. And uh, somebody said about your location, you need to talk about your church and where you are and say it loud and say it often and repeat because people will just kind of forget. People are going about their daily lives and they forget about a church being there. Oftentimes they'll forget about God until they see a, a cross somewhere up on top of a hill lit up at night and maybe make them think about grandma used to take them to church or something like that, you know. But you, you need to remind them. So it's a harvest of souls. Now God harvests the souls. We sow, somebody else waters, but God brings the harvest. So it's uh, when we think of it, what it means to us, it should talk about us giving you know, our lives to Jesus Christ for salvation and then becoming mature and submitting to God. So number four, the meaning of Pentecost is that it had traditionally come to represent the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Now that's interesting. This made it the birthday of the Jewish nation. So in the mind of the Jews who came to Jerusalem for this feast, they were thinking that traditionally the rabbis, maybe in synagogue prior to Pentecost, the rabbis talked about the significance of Pentecost, traditionally reminding them of the law. So this is like something that you would find by reading the early writings of, of rabbis, which, which we have. Uh, this would be something that Josephus, the Jewish historian, would tell you about. When they thought of Pentecost, they thought of Mount Sinai. What happened on Mount Sinai? Moses went up there and received the law that was written by the finger of God, and it was like God's covenant agreement with Israel. And Israel said, I do, and they became a nation at Mount Sinai. It was their birthday. And it's interesting, uh, some, somebody I was listening to brought this point out, and I thought I'd share it with you. At Sinai, remember Moses came down with the first Ten Commandments, and he broke them. He got mad. He saw the people, and they were already defiling themselves with idolatry from Egypt, that they were in from Egypt. And Moses broke the tablets. And do you remember how many people died that day as a punishment? I, I thought, this is it's incredible. It's, 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 it's got to be more than a coincidence. 3,000 people died. On the day of Pentecost, how many people got saved? 3,000. Yeah, isn't that interesting? The Bible is so detailed. There's so much intricacy to it. And so they would have thought as the birthday of Israel, but you know what it became for the church? Pentecost is when we remember the birthday of the church. Because 50 days after the Lamb of God was slain, uh, the witness to that event would see a new harvest, a new nation that would be led by the Spirit of God rather than the law of God. Then they would scatter into the world because when the Spirit came down, that's when believers were baptized with the Holy Ghost and placed into the body of Christ as we've studied. We'll, we'll look at that more as we go through this. So that's when the actual church was formed. 
Okay? And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, fully come, what does that mean? Well, it means just what it says there, fully come. That's referring to the morning. Okay? Fully come. Because Jewish days start at 6 p.m., so the first day of the week would have started Saturday night, 6 p.m. The first daylight hours of the first day of the week would be 6 a.m. Uh, and then Pentecost would go from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. On, on the first day of the week. So when it was fully come, it's talking about the morning. Uh, they were all with one accord in one place. And what were they doing? Uh, they were just together, sitting in that place. And they all had harmony. There was agreement between all of them about what they were doing. They were all there for the same purpose. They'd all followed the same man. They had the same purpose of life. They had the same goals. They had the same statement of faith. It's just like a church today. When we gather, we're all gathered together with one accord. That just means to have unity, be in agreement. And in one place. And God likes that expression of a church coming together, all believing the same thing. We're all on the same mission. We all have the same purpose of life. And we have unity within the truth of God's uh, word. And they were gathered together, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing, mighty wind. So I imagine them probably sitting in the upper room. I imagine that, but it could be that they were in the temple somewhere or around the temple in one of the temple courts. But I imagine it being in the upper room. As I talk about this, just anybody uh, here have a take on that? What have you heard in the past? Have you heard that they were in the upper room when the Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost? Or have you heard that they were in the temple? Because it doesn't exactly say, I mean, the end of the last chapter, they were, they were in the upper room. So that leads me to believe that. Verse 13 of chapter 2, when they were come in, they went up into an upper room. Um, I just wondered if you've ever heard anything different. Okay. So they were together, and then... The first initial sign and evidence that the Holy Spirit had come was what? In, in verse 2. It was a sound as of a rushing mighty wind. So when the Holy Spirit came, that's the first initial evidence, the first initial sign of it. Notice that they were all together in the same place from verse 1. They were not praying. It doesn't say that they were praying. They weren't, in other words, they weren't praying for the gift of the Spirit, even though it had been promised. The promise of the Father had been given, and they weren't praying for the gift of tongues, and they weren't praying for the baptism of the Holy Ghost. They were just together in one place, and then suddenly, all of a sudden, came upon them, the Holy Spirit, and the first uh, sign that was given to them was this sound from heaven as of a rushing, mighty wind. So it must have sounded like a hurricane in there, a rushing, mighty wind. And it filled, 
the house where they were sitting. The sound filled the house. So it was miraculous. It was, it was uh, life-changing. This is God. Anytime God is working, God works in the sp- spectacular. It's a miracle. Uh, it's the sound of a rushing mighty wind. But they weren't praying for it. Okay? No one had hands on another person's forehead or anything like that. I'm pointing that out for a reason, okay? Because this chapter is the source of many problems in the church age, okay? Let's go ahead and go on just a few more verses. We'll talk about that in just a moment. So it was in the house where they were sitting. There it says right there, verse 2, in the house where they were sitting. So I suppose that would just seal it for us. It's got to be the upper room. And I don't see, but you know, when you hear G. Campbell Morgan preaching and talking about the temple and everything, um, but it, it was in the house where they were sitting. Verse 3, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. Second sign. So the first sign that God gave them that the Holy Spirit was present was wind, right? The second sign that God gave them that the Holy Spirit was present was cloven tongues, like as a fire. They weren't fire, but there were cloven tongues uh, to have a, something cleaved, would be, that it would be split, like a cloven uh, hoof of an animal. So a tongue on, their, on top of their heads that looked like fire, and it sat upon each of them. So that was the second sign. It wasn't fire. This isn't the baptism of fire. We studied that before. The baptism of fire is a lake of fire. It's God's judgment. It's the severity of God. So the second sign is this cloven tongue like as of fire. And then verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There's another sign that the Holy Spirit was present and had uh, fulfilled the promise of the Father and that they were receiving the Spirit that Jesus promised. The third sign would be tongues, okay? Let's talk about, first of all, the positive meaning for us, for the church, that we need, and then let's talk about some of the, the misunderstandings uh, and, the, and some of the negatives of this. First of all, This is what the church needs for power to be able to serve, is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, The the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost to birth the church and to empower the church. And because of this, they had great boldness and God worked mightily. They were just a group of scared disciples huddling in the upper room. And, and waiting for the promise of the Spirit. And for fear of men, they were hiding from men. But once the Holy Spirit came down, what did they do? They went out and preached boldly. Peter stood up, preached his sermon in the power of Pentecost, and uh, 3,000 were saved, and, the, and God worked mightily. And they went out from there, and they were bold witnesses. And the, the, the apostles went different ways, you know, the, 
Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us about the directions that the apostles went. They went out in the east, went up into India, they went uh, down into uh, just around, up into uh, Asia Minor toward Rome. I think Paul eventually ended up in Spain, but they went everywhere. Hmm? Yeah, Turkey would be Asia Minor. Yes, ma'am. Yep. And so they were empowered, and this is what we as a church need. We need to be empowered. But here's the thing. This empowerment will give us boldness to witness. It'll, it'll produce in us Christ-likeness and maturity, and, um, and it'll give us victory over sin. But here's the thing. You, you might have heard this, that as a Christian, um, there are some who say that you need a second work of grace. Okay, that you need a second act of God, and you need to pray for it. And if you pray for it, it will give you boldness. You will no longer be timid and afraid to witness for Jesus Christ. If you have this second act of God's grace, it will, it will uh, give you your gifts. You will be empowered to use your gifts. You'll hear things like this. And they say that this second act of grace is how God produces sanctification. We talked about that recently. Sanctification, holiness of life, which means just to be Christ-like, to, uh, to walk as Christ walked, to have victory over sin, separation from sin, separation unto God. They say that that is how God produces sanctification, is this second act of grace, and that is entirely false. That is not true. I preached a message about it recently, um, and I can't remember what, what, what service it was, but I talked about the difference between holiness and godliness, remember? How does God produce holiness in the life of a believer? He does it as we practice godliness. And if you'd like to hear that message, I, I believe it's up there online. He does it by practicing godliness, that is, the daily devotion of the believer. As you do that, God produces holiness and you progress in sanctification. It is not in getting alone with God and praying for some kind of a second work of grace. It is not in going forward at a meeting. Listen, folks. It's not going forward at a meeting and having an evangelist put his forehead, hand on your forehead. That is not biblical. That is not how God produces holiness and sanctification in the life of a believer. You can have that done, and you can walk out and be the same man on Monday morning at, at, at work. <coughs> The second work of grace <clears throat> is not what this is referring to. Let me give you something else. Yeah, yep. And you've watched it on television. That's a religious huckster. Now listen, I, I, I think I know more about this probably than the average person because you've heard my testimony. My family's involved in this stuff. You can go to a church... Um, you can go forward at some of these church meetings, and you can be slain with the Spirit. Uh, it's another Spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit. But you can be slain with the Spirit. And listen, you'll go forward. The evangelist or the pastor will uh, put his hand on you, pray in tongues. And I've seen people be knocked over. I've seen, I've seen the goofy stuff, and then I've seen the authentic thing. I've seen the goofy stuff, the woman flopping around in her moo dress and just all kinds of uh, bad things about that that could be said. But um, talk about being immodest. That was immodest. So, uh, 
then, you know, they, some of them, they'll throw a blanket on. I'm not here to make fun of anybody. I'm here to, to denounce error. Then I've seen the, the stuff that really does work and does something. I've seen, again, members of my family, where they go to these meetings and they put their hands on them and they speak some jibber-jabber that nobody interprets, which is unscriptural. And that person is slain in the spirit and then they start rolling around laughing and uh, they're out of it, man. They're out of it. They're, they're, uh, they, they, they act drunk, and they really, they're disoriented. I'm telling you, it's real. It's not, a, it's not they're not faking. Uh, they're disoriented. Um, family members of mine have spoken about coming home after these meetings and just being out of it for a couple of hours, going to bed that night, or, or uh, laying down to sleep and take a nap, uh, and then have said that there felt like something was crawling up their body and laying on top of them. Uh, some people say describing it as feeling like warm honey being poured on you uh, before or after the experience. That stuff is satanic. Hey Dad, That's devilish. Talking about you know that mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's some of the wild stuff, just way out there stuff. But it's there's something to it. It's real. It's a spiritual thing, and it's a deception. Now, uh, and it, and it, now you say, does it produce holiness? Say, give us an honest examination of family members and friends and you know, uh, associations to your family that go to these kind of meetings. Did it produce holiness in their life? Listen, one of the advantages of being the baby in the family is you get to watch a whole lot of stuff happen in family and watch people pass on to the next, you know, pass away and, and, and move on. You get to watch all this stuff, and I've watched it all. Does it produce holiness in the life of a believer? No, a resounding no. And I'm not being judgmental, just saying, looking at the fruit of the thing. No. Does it produce assurance of salvation? A big, big, big no. Does it produce confidence at death? No. It really doesn't. Okay? Now, I've seen people who are truly born again and love the Lord and were soul winners and filled with the Spirit, and I've seen those people pass away, and it's different. My, oh, my. And so I'm telling you, it's, it's, uh, I'm not just slandering or trying to slander people this morning. What's that? Yeah. Okay. So not trying to put anybody down, but just trying to, uh, you teach against false teachings to protect your people and to know what's right. And then we uh, also teach what it actually means for us. Now, the day of Pentecost, it, it became a, a, had a Jewish significance and then became a Christian uh, significance. It happened one time. Okay. This is my this is my teaching to help protect us from being, you know, deceived by this. It happened one time, never to happen again, okay? They did not celebrate it next Pentecost. The church did not celebrate it, and there was not another outpouring of the Spirit next Pentecost. So it happened one time, and uh, the Holy Spirit was poured out, and those who were there that were saved were baptized into the body of Christ, and... The, uh, the apostles who were there that had already received the Spirit were filled with the Spirit. 
okay? Happened one time. Nobody was praying for it. No one laid hands on another, okay? So if you're going to do that, you're not getting it from the Bible. No one laid hands on another. And the initial sign, the initial sign was a rushing mighty wind, not speaking in tongues. Now let me tell you another heresy before we move on. In verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So, someone says, have you received the Holy Ghost with the initial evidence of speaking in tongues since you believed? And uh, you might meet somebody at work like this. And you say, well, no, I haven't received that. And they'll say, well, you're not saved yet. Okay? Because if you haven't spoken in tongues... You're not saved. And you say, well, what do you mean? They'll say Acts chapter 2. When they received the Holy Spirit, they spoke in tongues. Okay? And I'm going to tell you, right there. Hey, man, I got scriptural proof right there. How can you argue with that, right? Well, don't you know that uh, not everybody on the day of Pentecost spoke with tongues? It was just the apostles. Okay? Yep. It, It wasn't everybody. And then... Later on, when the 3,000 got saved, they didn't speak in tongues. They didn't speak in tongues. And then what's more than that, Paul taught later on to the Corinthian church, he said not everybody does speak with tongues. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and 14. Or 14. No, not everybody does speak with tongues. Not everybody has that gift. Paul said, I would that you all spake with tongues, but not everybody had the gift of tongues. Okay, so the initial evidence is not speaking with tongues. The initial evidence was the rushing mighty wind. Okay. Yep. Uh huh. So what they'll do is um, they'll have you come to church with them. Okay, and they'll say you don't go to that old stuffy, boring church that you go to, and nobody nobody even enjoys themselves. Come to my church. And, uh, boy, we really enjoy ourselves. And uh, i got to admit, there's some of those services are, you know, a lot of energy, a lot of excitement, and things like that, and people smiling, looking like they're enjoying themselves. But that's not the uh, proof that they got, you know, the real thing. But i got to admit. Now, when, when, they, when the Holy Spirit showed up, they were mistaken as being drunk, right? And they, it, was, it was lively. That's a good thing. People ought to say that something is happening here. There's boldness. It's it's lively. People are affected by it. You know what I'm saying? So I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Okay? We'll, We'll get to that eventually. But what I'm saying is this, is that they'll say to you, come to our church, and they'll put your church down. And, you know, don't go to that old Baptist church and that old stuffy minister. He don't believe anything. Come to my church. And then at the, at, the, at the invitation, they'll say, come forward at the invitation with me. And then when you come down there, we'll have our preacher. He's a real man of God. He's, he's got the spirit. We'll have him pray for you. What they're doing there is they're praying that you will be baptized uh, with the Holy Ghost, with the initial evidence of speaking in tongues. You say, do you know what you're talking about there? Yes, I've been to those meetings. I went forward. I knelt down. And I honestly said, Lord, if you, if you have this for me, I want everything that you have for me. So I knelt down, let the preacher pray. I believe the man loved the Lord. I believe he was sincere in trying to reach young men for Christ, not trying to put him down, because he was sincerely wrong. 
But he prayed for me, and I said, Lord, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, and nothing happened. And nothing happened for anybody. Um, and so it was like there was a couple of guys that seemed like they were kind of the, the inner clique of that church, and they all would do the tongues thing and stuff like that. But for the rest of us, we, I was a soldier at the time. Nothing happened, and no, nothing happened for any of the soldiers. So I'll say this, but they'll tell you, they'll put this guilt on you. If you don't speak with tongues, this proves that you were not baptized with the Holy Ghost, which is salvation to them. And uh, if you didn't speak in tongues, you're not saved. They'll put people under that. Am I, am, I not, am I lying? Okay. So now what is the problem with that before we move on? Okay. <clears throat> when they received the Holy Spirit here on the day of Pentecost, it was an experience. It was an experience. So it was like experiential. When you are truly saved, you're born again by simple faith in the old-fashioned gospel. You come to Christ by faith and are saved. When that happens, you are baptized with the Holy Ghost. 1 Corinthians 12. Let's look at that real quick. That happens at the moment of your conversion. And it is not experienced it's not experienced in the same way that it was on the day of Pentecost. And I, I really meant what I said there. <clears throat> and I thought through that. Um, and that's not just my testimony. That's the testimony of, uh, of good, sound Bible teachers. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Like I've said before, there's many things that happen to you when you're saved that you're not aware of. Uh, one of them that was that you were adopted into the family. You weren't aware of that until somebody taught you that later on, that you were adopted and given an inheritance. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, For as the body is one and hath many members, this is the body of Christ, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. You see, he's saying just like your human body, you got fingers and fingernails and you know arms and legs, many members, but one body. That's what Christ is like, the body of Christ. Then verse thirteen, for by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. You see. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. This is a spiritual, mystical kind of a thing. Um, it's a mystical union where you are placed into the body of Christ with the Holy Spirit. So this is another baptism in the, in the scriptures. There's seven of them. This is the spirit baptism. This is not water baptism. Water baptism pictures what happened with the spirit baptism. It, it pictures what truly happened to you on a spiritual level when you got saved. So you were baptized into one body. Now, if you're not in that body, you're not saved. And Paul would say, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. What is the initial evidence of having the spirit of Christ? It is not Pentecost. It is not speaking with tongues. The, the evidence of having 
the Holy Spirit in your life is that you have a changed life. You're producing the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. That's the, that's the evidence of having the Spirit. But God's signs that he gave to the Jews on the day of Pentecost, that's a different matter. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But you see, you've been placed into the body of Christ. If you'll look real quick at uh, Romans chapter 6. So you have, just before 1 Corinthians, Romans, and chapter 6. And it seems confusing when you hear these things, especially the way that it has to be taught, because what you have to hear is you have to hear how it's misused and misunderstood because you live in the 21st century. And then you have to hear what's wrong, and now, and now we're going to the Bible to show you what's right. And so at first it seems confusing, but it's the best way to teach, to show you what's wrong and then show you what's right. What shall we say then? Verse 1 of chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Okay, and then Paul says dead to sin, and now he just goes off on what he means by that. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Spiritual baptism, the moment you were saved, you were baptized into Christ. That means when he died, you died. You were united with him in his sufferings, united with him in his death. And uh, verse 4, by baptism into death. Now, not water baptism, spirit baptism. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. When Christ rose again, you rose again. You're united with him. Now look, in verse 5, if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. That's both spiritual and what is pictured in water baptism. This is what water baptism pictures. We shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. You see, that did not happen. <clears throat> you were not crucified with him when you were laid in water in a church or in a river. You were crucified with him 2,000 years ago. You understand? It's a mystical, spiritual thing. <clears throat> Baptism with the Spirit has two kind of ways that I like to think about it that's helpful for me. You are placed into Christ. So you're in his body. That's why Paul explained it that way. That helps me. Then you're united with Christ. It's a mystical union. You are united with him. You say, what does that mean, united? That means that everything he experienced, you experienced it with him in a mystical, spiritual way, and therefore he experienced it for you. You say, what do you mean? The suffering. You have experienced the suffering with Christ, in Christ. The death. Therefore, the wages of sin is death. Since he died for you, you don't have to die for your sin. The burial, the resurrection, so that now you're dead, like Paul said. You're dead and your life is hid with God in Christ. Therefore, the law cannot touch you. Therefore, you're free. You're going to go to heaven. Okay? You're going to go to heaven. Now, let me, let me put it to you this way. You say, you say, are you sure about all this, being united with Christ? What did, what did Jesus say to Paul when he found him on the road to Damascus? 
What did Jesus say to Paul that he was doing that was so wrong? He said, Paul, Paul, or said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? That's that mystical union with the body of Christ. Was Paul literally persecuting Jesus incarnate? No, but he was persecuting Christians. And Christians, they are, in a sense, Christ incarnate. So that when you persecute a Christian, you're persecuting Jesus. So that when a Christian suffers, Jesus suffers. You see? Um, look at it. Look at Pentecost this way. Think about it this way. Um, how we should think about Pentecost now today in a, in a positive way. When Christ came to earth at his first coming, his incarnation, he was limited in the sense of he had a human body. He, he couldn't be, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> he couldn't be here in uh, Jerusalem doing something and at the same time in uh, Nazareth doing something. You see, he was limited. He limited himself. He did that himself. Now he was still God. He could still know what was happening in Jerusalem and know what was happening in Nazareth at the same time. But he limited himself. He could only heal so many people with two hands. And they'd all just get in lines and come to him. And then he started to multiply his efforts when he sent out his apostles and said, go forth, preach the gospel of the kingdom, which is not the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, by the way. But preach the good news of the kingdom and heal, cast out devils. Now he multiplied his efforts, you see. Now, in, instead of just him doing it, he taught 12 men to do it. And they could go out and do it too. Now, when Christ died on the cross, he was setting up something where he could multiply his efforts even more. And he did this by Pentecost. When Pentecost uh, occurred, Holy Spirit came down. Then the apostles were filled with the Spirit. Everybody who had believed were baptized into Christ. That was the first time that it had ever happened. It did not happen prior to Pentecost. So there was no body of Christ prior to that. <clears throat> they were all filled with the Spirit and therefore able to go out and be the hands and feet of Jesus. Do you understand? So he kind of limits himself. Christ limits himself even then, doesn't he? Because the church is only in Jerusalem. The church is nowhere else. The church has to go out. He limits himself. Why does he choose to do it that way? <clears throat> Why does he choose to do it through faulty humans? That's just what God wanted to do. That's his plan. And so he limits himself, but that's the way he chose to do it. <clears throat> he expanded his influence when Paul went into Asian Minor and started churches. People got saved. Now you got a new church. Guess what you have? More hands, more feet. So your hands can go about and do the work of Jesus. The, the ministry of love and uh, of, you know, the, like delivering gifts or comforting the sick or spending time with the lonely, preaching the gospel, uh, all of those things. He expanded his, his influence, but at the same time, he limits it, doesn't he? He limits it. You know why? It's limited because there's only so many believers. So therefore, in this community, if we don't do the work of Christ, it doesn't get done. And we're only so many people. We can only do so much. And then 
Here's a negative application. If we refuse to do what we were made to do, because we're made new creatures in Christ, are we not? If we refuse to do what we're made to do, if these hands won't do what Jesus wants them to do, if these feet won't go where Jesus wants them to go, we limit what he can do. But in his wisdom, he knew this was the way to accomplish the gospel work. We could use this mouth to bless or to curse, can't we? It's sad, and, and good things and bad things come out of this mouth. But we got to think about it like this. Jesus wanted to indwell me. How could he do that? He did it by sending his Holy Spirit. So now you could literally say, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's in me, and he wants to work through me and empower me to do this. And literally, all you have to do is just let him have it. Now, you do not need to pray for a second work of grace. We'll look at that more next Sunday uh, to show you why these signs, why they occurred. You don't need to pray for a second work of grace. What you have to do is give yourself to the devotion of God, that godliness that we talked about. Be devoted to the life of Christ. Be devoted to letting yourself be his hands and his feet. And as you do that, God produces holiness in you. We've got one more minute. We could do this. We could do this to you as you come into the church. We could do this. We could say, okay, you want to be a member of Antiquity Baptist Church? Here's all of these rules, these real high standards. We're setting the bar high. Now, if you want to be a member, you come in here. We're going to inform you of all of these rules. This is what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to live. Here and at home, we could do that. Now, live up to these real high expectations. And if you don't, we'll talk to you. We could do that. You know what we'd produce? Pharisees. Because <laughs> that's what they did. This is what God does. God says, no, come into the church. They gave them very few basic things. Don't eat stuff that's been strangled. Don't eat blood. Don't eat the idolatrous sacrifices with their blood. Very few things that you had to do in order not to offend the Jews around Jerusalem in the very beginning in the book of Acts. But other than that, they just said, walk in the Spirit. And, like, and there's very few things that they said not to do. And even those things were just so you wouldn't offend the Jews around you. And then they just said, just come into the church and God will meet you where you are and take you to where you need to be. And it's, there's, you don't see all those rules and somebody holding you to them and punishing you if you don't. That's not in the New Testament. So, all right, we'll take a break there.